Amen. Amen. So good to have you all here tonight. Exodus 23 is where we're going to be tonight. Um, so today's March the 1st. Hard to believe, isn't it? Two months of the year's down already. But I wanted to start waiting until March to share with you some things that are coming up, just to start putting them on your radar. And every Wednesday and every Sunday, you will either hear me or one of the elders remind you of a lot of stuff that's coming up that we want to make sure that if you want to be a part of it, you don't miss it. First, I want to mention that March the 12th, Sunday, March the 12th, is the next time we do the Lord's Table. And Teresa was sharing with me that she needs help, especially at the 11 o'clock service. So if you could help us with communion on March the 12th, especially at 11 o'clock, that would be greatly appreciated. The next Sunday, March the 19th, I realize it's during spring break, but there really is no perfect time to do this. And for any parents and those who want to help out with our youth that can't make this meeting, we will make sure that you get all the information from this meeting. But I want to have a meeting with all parents, both of present youth and parents of those who are coming into youth group this year. I think we got eight new youth group members out of our children's ministry coming in. And also anyone who wants to work or is interested in working with our youth. And it's going to be between services on March 19th. So between the 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock service. So if you come to the 9, stay a little bit longer. If you come to the 11, come a little bit earlier for that meeting. It's going to be a really important meeting. And then April, first Sunday of April, our 13th anniversary as a church, second Sunday of April, Easter Sunday, third weekend of April, baptism, fourth weekend of April, men's retreat. I mean, there's a lot going on. So keep all of those things in mind. Tonight in Exodus 23, Moses is sharing with us three primary things as God moves his people from being slaves in Egypt to devoted, enthusiastic worshipers. The first thing he wants to talk to them about is sort of a continuation of what he's been talking to them about, and that is that the worship of me, Jehovah, is connected to how you treat one another, that there is no such thing as sacred and secular. There's no such thing as compartmentalizing our life. It all goes together with God. So how we relate and treat our brothers and sisters in Christ and our fellow men is directly going to affect our worship of God. And so tonight, he wants to really talk to them about justice. The Lord of truth and justice needs to see truth and justice be reflected in his people in all aspects of their dealings with other people. Amen. Then in the second section, we're going to talk about worship. God wants to begin to create rhythms in their life. And we're going to talk about that, especially when it comes to their worship of him and how worship needs to be a priority of the people of God's life. And then finally, we're going to talk about conquest. And we've sung a lot about that tonight as well. How do we make ground? How do we take ground for God? How do we take ground spiritually? How do we see victory in our life? How do we become overcomers? Well, Moses has a lot to say about that as we close out our chapter tonight. And it's exactly what Nicole just prayed. It's not about us fighting, in a sense, for the victory. It's about us resting in the victory that God can bring to us. 
or wants to bring to us as we follow him. And so we'll talk about that tonight. But first of all, notice in the first nine verses that it, this is really all about justice. See, devotion to God will mean living and serving and worshiping in ways that are quite distinct from surrounding cultures. God not only was drawing his people to himself, but he wanted them to understand that if you follow me, if you live the way I'm teaching you and training you to live, you will be very different from the nations around you. You will be very different from the culture around you. You will stick out, okay? And that's always been the case, and that's also true today, you see. And so notice he says, verse 1, don't give a false report. Don't hold hands with the wicked, especially when it comes to being a malicious witness. You see the word false report, malicious witness. You must not follow a crowd in doing evil things. Have a backbone and think for yourself and don't just follow what everybody else is doing, especially if it's not the right thing to do. And then notice the end of verse 2, to pervert justice. Don't show partiality even to a poor person, though, because justice is to be impartial. To be just is to treat people equitably, without partiality, to be fair in all things. So that means don't favor the wicked but, and don't favor the rich, but also don't favor the poor either. Do what's right in all circumstances with all people and treat them fairly. Then look at verse 4. Don't look the other way. See, that's part of justice too. Part of justice is being considerate of others, not oppressing others, treating people with, with kindness and everything. That's also included in the definition of justice. So God says, don't look the other way. If you encounter your enemy's donkey wandering off, return it. He goes on to say, if you see your enemy's donkey or the, the donkey of the one who hates you, who's fallen under a load, don't ignore him. Help the donkey up. Don't hate the animal of the one who hates you. Treat even an animal with kindness. That's being a just person. In fact, I'm getting a little bit off here, but this just reminded me, you know, there's a verse in Proverbs. I don't know the reference. But there's a verse in Proverbs that basically says, if someone treats an animal cruelly, that means they treat human beings cruelly too. If you treat an animal kindly, that means you treat human beings kindly. There's a connection there. Again, notice verse 6, though. You must not turn away justice from poor people in lawsuits. Again, the Lord is a God of truth and justice, and his people must be the people of truth and justice. So verse 7, keep your distance from a false charge. Don't kill the innocent and don't justify or acquit the wicked because God says, I'm not going to. Payday someday, you see. Don't accept a bribe, verse 8. For a bribe blinds those to doing what's right. Don't be someone that has a price. And then don't oppress a foreigner. Show kindness to strangers. For you were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. So all of this passage is really reinforcing the fact that God is setting up a nation and he wants one of the foundations of that nation to be justice. He is a God who is just, equitable, fair, impartial, kind, 
consider it. All of these things, he does not lie. And, and, and so God is saying, I need to instill these kind of virtues and qualities in my people so that justice and righteousness and all of that will be upheld. Now, again, remember, at this time in Israel's history, there were no court systems. There were not even any police forces or anything. They had to be a self-governing, if you will, nation. They had to do this from person to person, from home to home, from family to family, from neighbor to neighbor, so that it could literally be woven into the fabric of this society. So that down the road, when they did have, you know, justice systems, a judicial system, and uh, all of that, that that could just be woven in to the system itself. But it had to start with the people. And the system was only going to be as strong as the character of the people who were part of that system. You and I all know that in our world today. You can have the best form of government, but if you have corrupt people in there, the form of government doesn't matter because it always goes back to the character of the people who are there leading it. That's true in a church. That's true everywhere. It's true in business, you see. And so God is saying, I want my people to be a reflection of me. I am a just God. I want my people to be just themselves and to deal justly with everyone that they encounter because they cannot be a worshiper of me and live unjustly. They must be a just person. Then verse 10. God has always been a God who wants to create positive rhythms in our life. Because when he created us, he created us to live rhythmically. Okay? Um, I'm going to get a little out of whack here as far as, but, so I'm, I want to say this at this point, and I'll, I'll mention it again. So with that in mind, Know this, our spiritual enemy, the devil, will always seek to disrupt the rhythms of our life that God wants to bring in, okay? Because Satan understands that it's important that you and I develop rhythms according to God and that we live because we do best when we live within rhythms. Let me use the illustration before I even get into the rhythm of worship to, to sort of get us thinking along those lines. That's why God said six days, and we're going to see that, six days you work, seventh day take it to worship me so that you can rest, refresh, pause, all of that. Take, get that rhythm, and he's going to talk about that. But you and I even know that to be true even with our physical life. God made us so that we work best when we live and even sleep rhythmically. I mean, you're told, I'm told, that it's better for your body if you get up at the same time every day and you go to sleep at the same time every day. And your body gets used to that rhythm so that when that rhythm is developed, you work at your optimal level by living at that rhythm. If you get your body off that rhythm, 
then you're not going to live optimally. I grew up in a home where my dad could never develop a rhythm because he worked back in the 60s and 50s and early 70s when I was growing up at Pittsburgh Plate Glass Company. And back then, you worked shift work. So one week, my dad would work the 8 to 4, what was called the daylight shift, from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Then the next week, he would work 4 to 12, from 4 in the afternoon till midnight. And then the next week, he would work what was called the cat-eye shift, which was midnight to 8 in the morning. My poor dad never knew what was, what was day, what was night, when he should sleep. His body was always off. Why? Because God created us to have a rhythm to our life. And God wanted to instill that kind of rhythm into our worship so that we would have a consistency to us. Now, that doesn't mean that God is against or doesn't want us to be spontaneous worshipers. He does. He loves that. I mean, you and I, you know, we could be driving down the road and all of a sudden we're just overcome or overwhelmed with God and we just want to praise him and worship him. There's nothing wrong with spontaneous worship. It's awesome. It's great. But God also wants that simply to be woven within the rhythms of worship. So notice beginning in verse 10, the Sabbath rhythms. There is six years you are to sow your land and gather the produce, but the seventh year, you're to let it alone. A whole year. So that the land will rest, so that the animals that work the land can rest, so that the people who work the land can rest, and also so that the poor, notice verse 11, can glean from the field that whole year. God accomplishes multiple things at the same time. So he's developing here what I'm calling Sabbath rhythms. And the first rhythm is six years you work the land, then the seventh year you take it off, right? Then notice the weekly rhythm, verse 12. For six days you are to do work, but on the seventh day you must cease. Why? Because again, you need to give your animals rest. You need to give the people that work the rest. You need to take rest. In fact, notice the words rest and refresh in verse 12. Oh, do we need to be reminded of that. Rhythm to our life. And that weekly six days work, one day off. Six days work. When you and I live rhythmically and we worship God rhythmically because that's part of our worship, we will then be able to live optimally, you see. But when we can't do that or when we don't do that, we get off spiritually, emotionally, and physically. We need to get back into rhythm, right? And that's what God is teaching his people here because we all need times of rest and refreshment, but we also need to work. And so we need to be able to balance that out. And God is teaching his people, this is how you do it rhythmically. Notice in verse 13, he says, pay attention to this. It's important because it's part of the way you're worshiping me. By setting aside your field for a whole year and by setting aside a day for me and for you every week of your life. Then notice beginning in verse 14, he talks about festival rhythms. 
He is instituting three times a year. They are to come and they are to celebrate these feasts. The first is verse 15, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The second is the Feast of Harvest, verse 16. And the third is the Feast of Ingathering, verse 16. These festivals celebrated the Lord's provision for his people. And that's why you'll see at the end of verse 15, no one should appear before the Lord in these festivals empty-handed because that would be a contradiction. That would be saying, God hasn't provided anything for me. No, you never come to these festivals empty-handed because it is, a, it is symbolic of what the Lord has just in a very small way blessed you with, you see. And it is, it is ways to praise him as we come together as God's people. And so God wanted his people three times a year to do this, to get into a rhythm that at this time of year, this is what we're going to do. And we're going to do it every year. I've tried to get our leaders to think along those lines. Whether you're in men's ministry or women's ministry or youth ministry or whatever it is, to start scheduling things in your ministry the same time, you know, during the year so that even our people begin to know, oh, I know when the women's retreat is every year. I know when the men's retreat's going to be every year. I know when the youth retreat. I know when these things are coming because they're coming at the same time every year. We do well when we work and worship within these rhythms. Amen. By the way, I, I want to point this out. When you go from unleavened bread to harvest to ingathering, you're building an abundance. You know, the, the, the feast of of uh, unleavened bread was a pretty meager feast. Remember, that was the meal right before they left Egypt. And God even said, you're not going to have time to do a lot of getting things ready. So it wasn't a very big meal, so to speak. But, but you go from a meager meal to a harvest meal to the ingathering where all the abundance of God is brought in. And God is doing this for a reason. He wants to also instill in, in his people's minds and hearts that the best is always coming. That it's always getting bigger and better as you move along with me. And guess what that, what's at the end of it? Abundance. Because I'm a God that leaves abundance in my wake. And you keep following me, and you're going to go from this meager meal to a banquet sitting at the king's table, you see. And so God is also instilling that in them as well. Notice that devotion then to the Lord should be something that's expressed daily, weekly, annually, and continually. That's how God wants to be worshipped. Daily, weekly, annually, and continually. We should all be worshipping God that way. And we should be paying attention to our worship. Notice verse 18. Don't offer the blood of my sacrifice with bread containing yeast. The fat of the festal sacrifice must not remain until morning. They are to pay attention to their worship and not offer polluted or putrid sacrifices. God wants our minds and hearts fixed on him, and he wants our best. Therefore, we must be intentional and sacrificial when it comes to the worship of our God. Verse 19, the first of the first fruits of your soil you must bring to the house of the Lord your God. Amen. Give God the very best that we have, not the leftovers. And by the way, where are they supposed to bring it? To the house of God. 
which also then is, again, a reminder, the house of God has got to be a priority with the people of God. We cannot say, God, you're important to me, and yet not then follow the rhythms that he wants to see in our life, you see. So we've talked about justice. We've talked about worship and the rhythms of worship. But now I want to get to the rest of the chapter, conquest. And in this part of the chapter, all I can see is our God is a warrior. In fact, Exodus 15:3 says, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And he's going to lay out here to Moses and to his people, I'm going to conquer for you. All these people that inhabit this promised land that I want to give you, I'll be the one to defeat them. You've just got to follow me. And notice the promise and the assurances and the comfort and the encouragement that he gives his people about conquest. And, and I want to say this. Do we have anything to conquest today? Absolutely. Because we have to look at our lives that there's more ground to take. That we have more to experience with God and for God. That we're not, we shouldn't be satisfied with where we are with God right now. We shouldn't get complacent. There's more that God has for us as a church, and there's more that God has for us as individuals on this earth before we go to glory. And the only way we're going to do that is to learn to live victoriously, to learn to be an overcomer, to learn to prevail. And so we've got to learn the, the secrets, if you will, of how that happens. And it's the same way in the New Testament with us as it was in the Old Testament. Notice, first of all, some of these principles beginning in verse 20. I'm going to send an angel, a mediator of my presence, to go before you. God always goes before us, always. He's always there before we are. He's in your future and my future. He's in the church's future. So we never have to fear even what's a few steps ahead that we can't see because God is already there and he's gone before you. I don't know where you're at right now and maybe what's concerning you and worrying you and all of that about what's coming or what may come and what's in your future. I don't know, but I know this. Your God is already there. Amen. He is already there. And the angel of his presence is already there. Then notice. He's going before you to also watch over or protect you as you journey. God's with you and me every step of the way as we keep moving forward with him in victory, you see. There's never a moment that God is not with his people. Then, to bring you in to the place that I have prepared Again, going back to what I shared even before worship, God is with us every step of the way from beginning to end. I'm going to go before you. I'm going to be with you in your journey, and I'm going to get you to where I want you to be, the place that I have prepared. But here's a couple things. Do we want to go to where God wants us to go? God says, I want you, Jeff, to go here, and I've already prepared that place for you. Am I interested in going where God wants me to go, or am I more interested in going where Jeff wants to go? 
We have to ask that question. Because God is saying, I've already prepared a place for you. And here's the other thing. If God's already prepared where he wants us to head in the future, then we can trust him to get us there. Did you see that? If God's already prepared the place that he wants each of us to go, then God is saying, you can trust me to get you there because I'm going to go before you. I'm going to be with you every step of the journey and I will bring you into that place. But he does say in verse 21 to his people, take heed to this angel who is the mediator of my presence. Give him your full attention and listen to him. If he tells you to go this way, you go. Do not rebel against him. Do not defy him. For he will not pardon those transgressions and my name is in him. He carries my authority and the prestige of my name. But then notice verse 22, this promise. But if you obey and you follow him and do all that I command you, I will be an enemy to your enemies. I will be an adversary to your adversaries because I'm a warrior. I'll fight for you. Doesn't that remind you of Romans 8.31? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is saying, you follow me and your enemies become my enemies, I'm good with that. I'm good with that. That's why he goes on to say, verse 23, then my angel is going to go before you and he will bring you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will cut them down completely before you so that you can enter into the land. You don't have to worry about how you're going to conquer it. You just follow and I will lead you. I will lead the charge and make a way. Don't bow down, verse 24, to their gods. Don't serve them according to their practices. Don't let them be an influence to you. You must completely obliterate, wipe them out in all their places of worship. Why? Because he doesn't want these other nations and their false worship to begin to influence the people of God. You must serve and worship the Lord your God. And if you do that, notice the promise in verse 25. He'll bless your bread and water. He'll remove sickness from your midst. No woman will even miscarry or become barren. I will fulfill the number of all your days. Amen. God even said that back in Exodus 15. He says, if you follow me, none of the diseases that I brought upon the Egyptians will come to you. None of the diseases. I don't even know whether this book is still in print. I read this book 40 years ago, okay, when I was in seminary. But the book is entitled None of These Diseases. If you're interested in how God heals, how God helps our health, how following God and doing things God's way can literally impact us physically, if that book is still something you can get your hands on even in the secondary market, I would encourage you to do so. It's a fascinating book called None of These Diseases. I forget who the author is, but it's a book that I will never forget based upon what uh, God says here in Exodus, the book of Exodus. Notice verse 27. Again, God will lead the charge. You know who the uh, inventor of psychological warfare was? God. God invented psychological warfare. Notice verse 27. 
I will send my terror before you. Literally a divine fear and panic will grip the enemies of God's people. I will destroy all the people whom you encounter. I will cause commotion and confusion amongst them. I will make all your enemies run from you. Wow. All you got to do is follow me. All you got to do is trust me. All you got to do is believe in me. Look, I don't know what obstacles are in your way. I don't know what challenges. I don't know what enemies. I don't know what opposition you may be facing in your life. But I know this. You just follow God and God will literally just start cutting them down right in front of you. You and I don't have to, I mean, look at David and Goliath. Humanly speaking, there's no way this little shepherd boy kills that giant. But he went in the power and in the name of the Lord of hosts. And that stone that he flung at Goliath had supernatural power behind it. Because he trusted the Lord to give him the victory. Just like we sung tonight. The battle is the Lord's. God goes before his people. And God is saying the same thing to them and saying the same thing to us. Don't worry about what's ever in front of you. I can mow that down in a second. You just trust me and follow me. Then verse 28. I'll even use hornets. I'll use hornets to chase out some of the people in the land. Because I'm the Lord of hosts. And the Lord of hosts means that I have everything that I created in my universe at my disposal. I can use any creature, anything that I want to. And God did throughout the Bible. He used animals many times. He used a giant fish to swallow Jonah. He used a donkey to talk to Balaam. He used a young colt to carry his son into Jerusalem. God can use anything and everything to bring glory to him. God wants to use a little bee. God can say, here bees, I want you to come here and chase those people out. And that's exactly what they will do. I will not drive them out though. Here's an important point. Verse 29. I want you to see this. God says, but we're not going to do this fast. We're not going to do this quickly. We're not going to do this big chunks at a time. We're going to do this steady, but we're going to do it slow. I want you to get that in your mind because that's the way he works with us today as well as we conquer and make conquest. It is a process of progress. That's what I like to call it, a process of making progress. So notice what he says, verse 29. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild animals multiply against you. Here's what I underline in my Bible. First three words of verse 30. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you become fruitful and inherit the land. Little by little. That's the way God primarily works. Little by by little, because God wants us to grow and depend upon him for the rest of our lives. He never wants us to get to the place where we can go, okay, God, now I got it. No. 
So it's step by step, just what Nicole prayed. It's, it's step by step, little by little. And I, I want us to really get that tonight because so often I, I, I run into Christians who are discouraged that they're not making progress fast enough. Or that they're, they're not, you know, like jumping from point A down to point S. That's not the way God works. God just wants us to go from point A to get to B. And then once we're at B, oh, let's, let's now take a step to C and let's do it that way, you see. Rather than making these big leaps, all right? And so I hope tonight that that will be an encouragement to you. And because that's something that we can wrap our minds around. You know, where God wants us a year from now or five years from now, that's daunting. In fact, I even get that from people. Some people ask me, well, where do you see the church at a few years from now? I don't know. Sometimes I don't even know where God wants the church the next week. I'm just looking to God and go, God, what's the next step? Just show me what's the next step. That's all we need, God. Just where's that next step? And I hope that will encourage you because that's the way God works. God just wants to show us what's that next step that he wants us to take toward conquest. So tonight, that's what I want you to leave with. What is that next step that God wants you to take? Just a step. Where is it that God wants you to step with him as you continue that process of progress. And then I love the end of the chapter. God says in verse 31, I will secure your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the desert to the river. I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you. God's going to let us be a part of it as we partner with him. But let's face it, it's all God. It's all God. We're just following we're like the people that surrounded the city of Jericho and walked around it under the direction of God. God's the one that brought the walls down. We were just obeying the instructions of God. And that's the way God works today, in the same way. And so I hope tonight you've been encouraged. The Lord wants to fight your battles for you. He doesn't want you to be discouraged with what's ahead or or what obstacles or challenges or opposition you may be facing, or even what enemies may be in your way. God just wants you to totally be all in with him. Be a worshiper. Give him your all. Develop those rhythms of worship. Be a just person who treats others justly and equitably and fairly and kindly and considerately. And as we live that way, within the rhythms of worship and work that God has created, God will lead us step by step into victory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight that, Lord, no matter what time in history we live, Lord, you're the one we need to look to. You're the one who has our victory. You're the one that's already secured it. You're the one that's already been there and went before us. You're with us every step of the way. You will bring us to the place you want us to go, God. If you want us to go somewhere, then you will make sure that we get there. God, I just pray that through our worship of you, we will realize the God that we are following and that we'll never stop following 
and that we'll never stop feeling like we can get and, and make progress and get to where we need to go apart from you. It's always got to be in partnership with you. It's always got to be through following you, Lord. But when we do follow you, God, when we do partner with you, there's nothing that can defeat us. There's nothing that can hold us back. Everything, God, is going to be cut down in our path. We've just got to take it step by step, little by little. Thank you, God, for the way you care for us, for the way you love us, for the way you lead us into victory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for being here. We'll see you next week.